If I were to ask you what it is that you think is holding you back from experiencing the kind of spiritual growth and maturity that you would like to have in your relationship with God, could you identify that one or two things that it is? Because the first response that I hear more often than anything is to blame everybody else for what's holding me back. If it wasn't for my husband or wife, I could so be moving on and really thriving in my relationship with God. If it wasn't for those darn kids that just suck the life out of me, I could be freed up to focus in on me and my growth. If it wasn't for my job, if I could just find a better job where I could have more freedom, then I'd be free to move forward in my life. But I think that the first step in identifying what it is that's holding us back from growing spiritually is probably the most difficult one because it's to take responsibility for my own life, to take responsibility for my own growth, my own maturity, and to realize that if I'm not growing, it's not on anybody else, it's on me. We have to own the fact that if there is something that exists in my life that is preventing me from growing in my relationship with God, then the only one who can change that is me. Morning, y'all. How's everybody? Well, as Lisa said, we are uh, continuing in our series through Ephesians, um, which is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, and it is uh, as part of the New Testament of the Bible. And a lot of what it has to do with is spiritual growth, and so that's been really our focus and how that relates to our life and the success of our life and the fulfillment of our life as it goes um, through the years. Uh, Some people equate spiritual growth with attending church because they think of the church as a place where they can be spiritually fed, and to a certain extent that that's true, but to some people they take it to an extreme where they believe that The church is a place where you can strap on a bib, lean your head back, open your mouths and say, feed me. Feed me deep biblical teaching. Tell me the Greek words from the original New Testament. Teach me the deep things about the historical context of the Old and the New Testaments and Hebrew and Jewish culture. These are the people who, when they realize they're not growing spiritually, they say, you know, your teaching's just not deep enough. I'm just not getting fed. Feed me knowledge so that I can grow. And then there are still a whole other group of people who equate spiritual growth to emotion. And they lean their head back and they close their eyes and they say, Move me. 
These are the people who, when they realize they're not growing spiritually, they say, your worship isn't deep enough. Play more heartfelt music. We need some more Marvin Gaye up in here. (laughs) Make me feel better about my life. Inspire me with your messages. Move me and make me feel closer to God. And then there are still others who look at the church experience and they say, wow me. People who say, I want to know how God's going to just change my life. How he's going to make me prosperous and successful and make all my problems go away. I want to see the big, the miraculous. Wow me and make it all better. My marriage, my job, my finances, and God just do your thing. These are the people who, when they realize they're not growing spiritually, they say, well, you know, I've given this Christianity thing a try. But it doesn't feel like it's changed my life at all. In spite of my best efforts, God hasn't really done a thing for me. And I still hate my job. I'm still broke. My marriage is still bad. So I don't get the point of doing this God thing at all. Well, I think you probably already noticed that in each one of these cases, what the underlying problem is. Nobody is taking responsibility for their own spiritual growth. It's always somebody else's fault for them. And the common denominator in each of these cases is that it's all about me. Feed me. Move me. Wow me. Me, me, me. But the reality is that Christianity is just the opposite of that. The Christian faith is designed more around the idea that the more of ourselves that we give, the more we give away, the more we get in return, and the more we grow spiritually. And the church is God's way of providing us with opportunities to give and to contribute and to serve each other, not just to sit back and get fed until you become an obese, lazy, apathetic Christian in name only. So the Apostle Paul is just finishing the conversation about moving from the old zombie-like life to embracing the new life in Jesus And then taking it the next step, as we talked about last week, in filling ourselves with the fulfillment of God as Jesus takes up permanent residence in our lives. And when we are filled to capacity, to the brim, with nothing else left but God, he's then freed up to do immeasurably more than anything else we could ever imagine. And so as we transition into chapter 4, he says, now... Don't just sit there. Do something. Now that you're getting your life together, now that you're moving forward in your relationship with God, now that you have this new life in Jesus, live a life that is worthy of the grace that God has given you. So what does it look like to live a life that is worthy? Well, He sums it up in verses 2 and 3, and he says it looks a little something like this. Be completely humble and gentle. 
Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. One of the biggest things that holds us back from spiritual growth is a little something we call pride. We hate to admit that we're messed up, don't we? We work so hard at putting on the big front, the facade, pretending that we have our lives all together and there ain't nothing wrong with me. Pride is what keeps us from being authentic. It drives us to get others to think more highly of us than they do. Pride motivates us to look down on other people so that we can feel better about ourselves. Pride is what will keep many of us from ever getting too close to God because pride is the biggest obstacle to our spiritual growth. The Bible gives us a great example of this in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus says this, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other was a despised tax collector, a crook. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everybody else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. And I give you 10% of my income off the gross. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled by God. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I think that that's what Paul is getting here when he says to live a life that is worthy of the grace in which you've been called. In being humble. Because humility begins with an understanding of who you are and who you're not where you have a real self-awareness that you're not all that and ain't nobody any better than anybody else. Someone described humility as being the virtue whereby a man or woman becomes conscious of his or her unworthiness. A little ironic, don't you think? That Paul just said to live a life that is worthy of the grace that you have been called, and it seems to imply that living a life that is worthy is actually living a life where you are aware of the fact that you're not worthy. But that for the grace of God, go I. And it begins with an honest, unfiltered view of who we really are. Humility, then, produces gentleness, which is described in the Bible as being meekness. You may remember that that was one of the Beatitudes when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Many dictionaries will define being meek or gentle in terms of somebody who is timid, somebody who lacks courage. But that isn't even close to the biblical meaning of the word. Gentleness is to be mild-spirited and self-controlled, restrained, and to be the opposite of vindictive or vengeful. People think that if you're gentle, that is a sign of weakness. But on the contrary, it actually requires more strength to be gentle and to refrain from hurting somebody than it does to lash out and to harm them in some way. It's real easy to tear down, isn't it? But it takes real strength to consider other people's feelings and to really work at building them up and saying great things about them and encouraging them instead of starting rumors or talking nasty about them behind their backs. It takes a secure person who becomes a cheerleader of other people who work really diligently to say great things about other people. Because let's face it, all of us have the capability of tearing each other to shreds. All of us are capable of being harsh and rude and curt. But the issue is, will we allow our harshness to be replaced with God's gentleness? I have to be honest with you that this is an area of my life that I struggle with at times. As many of you know, I'm just a volunteer here at Westridge, and in my paying job in the business world, I learned how to swim with the sharks, so to speak, very early on. And I am very capable of flipping from being the pious pastor to a very harsh businessman, just like that. And I have to really, really work to keep that in check. I forget that God holds me to the same standard of how I treat other people, whether I'm in intense negotiations in some boardroom, or whether I'm sitting there having a cup of coffee in the cafe with another Westridger. God demands of me that I treat all people the same, And that we are people of gentleness and our hearts are soft so that we are approachable. Why? So that we can be a light when people are living in a dark, dark place. A third attitude that characterizes the Christian's worthy walk is that we are to be, I hate this one, patient, bearing with one another in love. That just sounds bad doesn't it? So this is an outgrowth of humility and gentleness and patience. When you literally translate it out, it means long-tempered or long-suffering, which I think is what he's getting to when he says that we are to be patiently bearing with one another in love. In other words, that we are to hang in there with each other, that we are to get each other's backs, to give each other the same grace that God has given each one of us. Because as humans, we all make mistakes. We all screw up. And what makes you any better? And we have to be able to give each other the grace that God has given us and to move past it. It is not acceptable 
for us to never work through issues that we have with somebody else and to hold on to feelings of resentment and anger. That is not living a life that is worthy of the grace that God has called us. God says, if I've given you grace and all the junk in your life, then you're to give that same grace to other people. So if we're to take all that was just said in this one verse and we were to add it all up, it goes a little like this. We are to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. And if you add it all together, no matter how you slice it, it comes out to be work. (laughs) He even takes it one step further. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And when you translate that phrase of make every effort from the Greek, it's like infinity, that you try over and over and over again until it finally gets through. In other words, Paul's saying that in order to achieve unity in the church, in order to get along relationally, it's a whole lot of work, and it ain't easy. But it's what God asks us to do. When it works... However, when we are so filled up with God, as we talked about last week, where we are filled to the brim with no capacity left for anything else to get in and taint this thing, then the love of God spills out of us in the form of all of these things, and all of a sudden, before we know it, we respond with humility and gentleness and patience and kindness, even in the midst of conflict, and you don't even know where that came from because you say, that ain't me. But it becomes you, the new you, as you mature in your walk with God and become worthy of the grace that he's given you. And when that happens, Paul says, and everyone in the church is all spilling out all this God stuff all over each other, all of a sudden... The the church starts functioning like a a fine old machine where each person in the church does his or her part to make the whole thing like this incredible place. And everyone is growing spiritually and there is an authenticity that exists because people are freed up to be themselves and nobody has to fake it and everybody is serving each other. It's the real deal and that's the way the church was designed by God to be and that's the way I pray Westridge will always be. Well, he goes on in verses uh, 11 through 13. And he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now here's the one thing that I want to emphasize in that passage. It doesn't say that we become spiritually mature from being fed, does it? Or that we become spiritually mature by being moved or wowed. Spiritual maturity does not come from just showing up at church on Sunday mornings or having an intellectual understanding of the Bible. 
Paul says that spiritual growth occurs when we become people of action and we do something. One of the largest recent surveys that was conducted by over 850 churches and 235,000 people. Oddly enough, the survey revealed the same thing that the Bible taught some 2,000 years ago, and that is this. Serving triggers spiritual growth. Serving experiences are the catalyst of spiritual growth. Because serving tends to take us out of our comfort zones and thrusts us into a new dimension in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Primarily because it gets our eyes finally off of ourselves, off of our own problems, off of our own stuff, and we tend to focus in on other people as we seek to serve others, becoming the hands and feet of Christ. In other words, as the creators of the survey actually said, Serving other people is something people need from the church, even if they don't know they want it. You may not know it yet, but you want it. If you want to grow spiritually, it begins with serving. And so the question remains, what are we filling our lives with? Because I promise you this, we all have a lot more capacity to be able to contribute and to serve other people in the church than what we think. I can't tell you the number of people who say, you know, I just don't have time. I- I'm swamped. I, I-, I-, I can't do that. I-, I'm just- I just don't have the time. Most of the time, it's because we've filled our lives up with so much of the wrong stuff that we've created no capacity in our lives to fill it up with the stuff that has meaning and the stuff that has significance. Get rid of the stuff that has no meaning and fill yourself with the stuff that has significance. As I said, I'm a volunteer here, and my paying job is a very demanding job as I run a company, so for me, it requires that my commitment to the church comes in weird places at times. I travel a lot, so I do a lot of writing of my messages at 30,000 feet or in some hotel room. Unfortunately, it means at times that I give up a Saturday or two a month But if I didn't think that what we were up to here at Westridge was worth it, I wouldn't do it. My business is not as important to me as my mission, which is this church. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for my job. I love what I do. I love the fact that I can pay the bills. It's just that making money doesn't give me the same sense of mission and purpose that I need to find fulfillment in my life. So I've learned to create capacity in my life where I thought there was none. I thought I was too busy. But it takes intentionality and work. 
And whoever told you that living a life of the Christian faith is not work, they didn't tell you the truth. One of the cool things that has happened in my life is that my wife volunteers here with me and has become my partner in ministry, which we're like on the same mission together, and it strengthens our marriage. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it. We at Westridge philosophically believe that you should find an area of ministry that you are gifted in and make that area great. Not that you should be busier or that you should be doing more, but that you actually create capacity in your life to take on an area where you can serve seriously to serve with intentionality, create capacity for it, and to commit fully to it. I am humbled when I think about the amount of work that it takes to do church just every Sunday morning, just on what happens on a Sunday. The amount of people who have to get up early to make it so that we can have this kind of meaningful church experience every week. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why do these people do what they do? What drives them? There has to be something. It's believing that what you're doing has a bigger purpose. And you take ownership in that area and you do the best that you can do because you are doing it not for you or anybody else, but you're doing it for God. How our view of serving would change if we could really understand that what we're doing has an impact on people's lives that will last for all of eternity. Don't waste another minute doing something out of a sense of obligation or guilt. It's not worth it. Do it because God has done something for you. You know, the older that I get, I think the more sensitive I am to wasting my life, you know? Because you start to get the feeling like you're running out of time. And the truth of the matter is, with every passing year, you always give your life to something. And the question is, what are you giving your life for? Your career? Another vacation? House? Building wealth? Trying to get ahead? And in the end, will what you have given your life for have any meaning or significance at all? The Bible says that there will come a day when we will have to give an account for our lives. And on that day, those of us who lived a life worthy of the grace that God has given, which is to say that we are so not worthy, but that we lived in His grace and extended his grace to others. That we have served to the best of our ability. The Bible says that on that day when we walk out of this world and into the next, if you listen closely, you can hear those words that every single Christian wants to hear on that day. 
as Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come now into the place that I have prepared for you from the beginning of time. You may not realize this, but whatever it is you did unto the least of those, you did it unto me. Live a life that is worthy of the grace that God has given you with humility and patience and love. And for the love of God, do something.